Tell me a story, Zeke. A story? Oh, do you have anything? Well, I've tried to do a play on the double name of Chicken and Cock, but I didn't know where to get it going. I think that's just stay away from that. Well, no, but I mean, it's the same thing twice, right? I mean, cockfighting is chicken fighting. Well, a cock is a male chick, um, a male rooster. A, yeah. a chicken is not a cock. That's like a bitch. A bitch is a female dog. Like, you don't have a male dog that's a bitch. Yeah, but they're still classified as a canine. Yeah, they're they're all, I mean, they're all poultry. Okay, I'm just saying that's, I'm trying to figure it out. What would it be if someone was born like both a, a cock and a chicken at the same time? Hermaphrodite? Yeah, but like if there's a hermaphrodite chicken rooster. I can't believe I got that right. You you are, but if you had a hermaphrodite chicken rooster. That was Final rooster, Jeopardy, dude. We're done. You would, you would have a chicken cock. Isn't that what a, it's so, this is a hermaphrodite whiskey? <laughs> We've gone far enough with this venture. <laughs> time to drink. Everyone, my name is John Edwards, and with me is Zeke Baker, and together we make the Dad's Drinking Bourbon. Wherever you are, whatever time it is, thank you for making us a part of your day. Say hello to the folks, Zeke. Good evening. Good night, and good luck. Well, that's the end. We're at the beginning. I know, but you were that was like TV news person over there. Hmm. A little something different. I'm very excited today. Do you know why? Because it's Friday? It is Friday. But you're like giving away the magic because this is probably going to come out like a week and a half from now. You excited because you got a new bourbon shirt? I haven't seen this one on you before. Well, you got it in the mail. I didn't open the box though. Oh, it's a great new bourbon shirt. Thanks to Conic. You know, based on that color green, I'm wondering if they just took an old military parachute and then put some printing on there. That's the way they got a shirt that was my size. Finally got the Edward size. They had to get a parachute and make it work. But no, it's. It, I'm very excited. Not only is it Friday, we have two guests in the Dad Shrinker Bourbon Studio that came all the way to my temporary apartment complex in this wonderful meeting room that overlooks the pool. And that is Greg Snyder and Adam Zinzer from Chicken Cock Whiskey. Thank you guys so much for coming. It's our pleasure. Glad to be here. Now, Greg Snyder is a master distiller extraordinaire who has probably had every job in the bourbon business and has probably worked everywhere. I got sent this bio and I looked at it and it's like, so I had a job before at, at a place and I'm not going to name the company, but every single time somebody would come in, it would say like, this person graduated from Yale. This person graduated from Harvard. Like it would be this resume that would just make me feel like it's small and ins- insignificant. Like looking at your bio makes me feel small and insignificant. Like the the man has done everything. Tell everybody what you've done. <laughs> well, I don't know about that, but um, I know it's always awkward when people talk it, about it. Right? Yeah, it is. You know, a lot of people say, "Well, man, how'd you get in the industry?" And it's it's quite simple. You know, I went to Indiana, Indiana University, and very proud of that, and and have a business degree. And, uh, you know, your senior year, there's a lot of career, career placement opportunities. And so I interviewed with, uh, with Seagram's was one of the companies I interviewed with. And I actually was very fortunate. This was back in 1978. And, uh, I ended up, uh, getting an offer from Seagram's and, and started working there. I actually started as a, a frontline supervisor and it was, uh, kind of 
opened the door for me in this this industry, and it's, it's been a, a long, great ride over 41 years, and I've enjoyed every minute of it. But uh, so started with Seagram's to kind of give you a little background of it, and Seagram's was a great training ground. You know, if you're aggressive, you you learn and you wanted to learn more, they gave you the opportunity. So I literally, in the five years that that plant was in operation in Louisville, Kentucky, I worked in in the distillery, the dry house, you name it, the, the warehouse operation, you know, filling barrels, putting barrels away, taking barrels out, dumping barrels, processing, blending, filtration, worked in bottling, shipping, worked in maintenance, worked in quality. But every aspect of that, that production operation had an opportunity. So it was a great training ground early on. They shut their operation down and consolidated operations uh, into other facilities. I had a, an opportunity to relocate with them, uh, but they were going to eventually send me to New York City to the corporate offices. And at that time in my life, I was in my you know, young tw- early 20s and uh, had a daughter one year old. And my wife was making better money than I was at the time. So... New York City was not the place for me to move to. So uh, <laughs> shortly thereafter, uh, I had an opportunity with Brown Foreman. And I went to work for Brown Foreman in, in Louisville, Kentucky. Another great company. Had uh, numerous positions in the production. I actually started out managing uh, their, their bottling operation on the afternoon shift. But uh, got a couple of promotions uh, within the, the production division there. And then I got an opportunity to go out to Cooperage. I worked for Brown Foreman for, for a total of a little over 12 years. But nine of those 12 years, I actually managed their cooperage. So I got some great background. A lot of people said, man, why do you want to go out to that, that hell hole? You know, it just, <laughs> it was, it was, it was hot. It was dirty. It was like walking back into the, you know, the 18th, you know, 19th century. And, and, uh, it was just a, a very antiquated operation and, and not the, the best working environment to speak <laughs> of. But it was important to me. You know, I learned every other aspect of how to make great bourbon. But but as many people don't know, the, the barrel is, is critical to oh, making yeah. a fabulous bourbon. So I got the opportunity to, to learn that aspect of it. So after 12 years at Brown Foreman, recruiter come calling on me one day. And I typically would just write him off and, and what <laughs> have you. But this particular day, it was, it was a good day. He called me on a good day and said, hey, uh, we got an opportunity uh, at Wild Turkey. Would you be interested in, in maybe looking at a job change? So I listened to what they had to say, and one thing led to another. Next thing you know, I was the, uh, the managing director at, at Wild Turkey Distillery and, and vice president uh, for Austin Nichols. Not uh, a bad gig. No, it, it, was, it was a nice, uh, nice move up for me uh, career-wise. I was weaned on bourbon, basically. My dad was a, was a big bourbon drinker, and and uh, and so you know that that kind of led to, to my enjoyment of, of the the product as well. But then the opportunity to work in the industry was just has been fabulous. It's been a great ride. Been been good to me and my family, and and uh, have no complaints. It's, it's it's a fun industry, and all in all. So I love how. The folks in your generation, and this isn't like a, a knock on, but you're saying I'm old. Or what? No, 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 I'm old now. <laughs> but the uh, it's always the that kind of crew, that old school crew. That I mean, you know, you talk to Al Young, and he's like, well, you know, it worked with Al Sigram. He's like, uh, well, I was doing the theater, and I figured I needed to get a job somewhere, <laughs> so I figured I'd just go work at this distillery, sweep it up, and then it turns into you know yeah. his career, and it's. Everybody always has a story where it's like, well, you know, I just kind of fell into bourbon. And it was never something where somebody woke up, unless you were a beam or, or you were in that family. Nobody was like, 
I absolutely was called to bourbon. Everybody was like, oh, I kind of found my way, and then I found my way a little more, and then yeah. I found my way a little more, and I love hearing those stories. Yeah, no, it's it's, it's exactly right. It kind of evolved, you know. Yeah, uh, and and you do it, it. You know, it literally gets in your blood to where you know, just it's it's a passion. It really is. But uh, well, and all those guys, it's like a you know fraternity essentially. You know, you kind of got a school, and y'all go separate ways. But most of you, you know, you know each other. You keep up for forever, and then. All of a sudden, you know, lay people see all of you in the same room, like they've known each other and essentially worked together off and on for how many years? And they're all just cutting up, having a good time. Like, whoa, that's a big part of, of the beauty of the whole thing, you know, is the friendships and relationships that, that you create. And, and I tell people, you know, this industry is, is unlike many others. You know, the marketing and sales side can be pretty cutthroat, and pretty <laughs> tough. But on the production side, we looked out for each other, always have, always will. You know, if, if I had a motor, you know, when I was a wild turkey, good example, if I had a motor that, that burned out and we didn't have a spare, I could call Four Roses or, or Buffalo Trace or, or anybody and they'd throw it in the truck and run it over to us. And we do the <laughs> same for them. I mean, we did it all the time. And so it's kind of the, the beauty of, 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 you know, that a lot of people don't see of the industry is that close knit. You know, we kind of look out for each other, at least on, on the production side. Like I said, sales and marketing can be a little bit, bit tougher and, and, uh, and competitive. <laughs> they, don't, they don't get invited to those late night backroom gatherings, I'm sure. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> please pass along a little bit of that uh, camaraderie to people on my side, please. That'd be fantastic. <laughs> so, Adam, speaking of sales, you have a resume that's not as impressive as Greg. How no, did you get into not. bourbon? It's, you mentioned the whole falling into it thing. It was the same thing. I, uh, I needed a job at a point back in 2009 when the economy was not such a great place. I uh, got done working in pro football, came back home to Nashville and needed a gig. And I briefly worked uh, in the country music industry for a, how can I say this politely and politically correctly, a, a country music duo. Uh, what I thought was going to be a fun gig turned out I was just going to be someone's personal assistant. I'll, I'll be the polite way to put it. And I was like, yeah, this is not for me. I'm not going to go get your groceries for you. So that didn't last very long. And I needed a job and I went to my favorite liquor store and boom, 10 Wait, years later, here I am. So you played pro football? No, no, I did not play. Sorry. I was in, I was in marketing. I worked for a couple of different teams. Yeah. But you couldn't, I feel like with that voice, you could have got voiceover work <laughs> like NFL films wasn't calling you to be the, the new voice of NFL films. I appreciate it, but I swear just the, uh, I don't have the voice inflection to do the perfect play calling duties. It, it doesn't, it doesn't come naturally. Well, back then it wasn't as big. It's like bourbon. It wasn't as big back then either. I mean, That's true. Think about it. You had the, the tight knit the, the crew of ESPN and what, you know, five or six people and you just knew them all and they were all their faces. I mean, no, that, well, I, Forget his nickname. Who's the guy he used to do the NFL films? He did all of the NFL films. Uh, Howard Cosell was one of the big no. names. And then uh, Sable. Um, yeah, uh, it was Sable. Steve but, Sable. Yeah. I but think Steve, Steve Sable, but it's the other guy, John Facenda. He was the one who did all of the NFL films. You know, when, when all yeah. they do all the old yeah. Ones where they showed the ice bowl and all that, and he's yeah. the one who's like, "It was a blistery day in Green Bay when they played the <laughs> Super Bowl one." You know, like he was the guy that everybody knew of on NFL film. Maybe it's because I'm a sports radio guy that yeah. I know that kind of stuff. But. All I listen to is sports radio. I'm afraid that's just uh, that one's over my head tonight. Maybe I've had too much bourbon already. I don't know. Probably, Pro but so you found your way into the sales and marketing side of it, right? And then so now both of you here are kind of a two-headed monster. Yeah. 
Greg, I know we jumped around a little bit. You were you were at Wild Turkey. Where'd you go after Wild Turkey? Yeah, so after Wild Turkey, I had an opportunity to go up to Maine. And I worked for a company up in Maine called White Rock Distilleries. White Rock Distilleries is a small privately owned company. It was kind of kind of nice going from the big corporate world to a, a privately owned company. There's a lot of advantages in that, a lot of opportunities to to make some some positive things happen. But uh, but Maine was was a great move. I uh, loved the state of Maine and, and uh, enjoyed the time I was up there. But White Rock Distilleries actually they came out with a couple products. The product that they did extremely well. With before I started there was Three Olives Vodka. The owner of the company sold that to Proximo, and I started there a year or two after that. I think that happened in 2009, and we focused on our biggest brand. We we had gosh, we had probably 75 different brands, mostly small local Northeast brands, but the biggest brand we had was Pinnacle Vodka. It was amazing for for three years straight. It was the fastest growing, not just vodka spirit. In, hmm. in, in the country. don't know what you guys know about that brand, but it was phenomenal, the growth factor. When I started there, 2009, I think it was right at uh, 1.2 million cases. The next year, 2010, it went to, what, 2.7 million cases. Then the next year, it went to 3.2 million cases, and it was on track to hit 4 million cases. All I know is that it's wicked awesome. Wicked awesome. Yep. It, it's yeah. wicked awesome vodka. I go get it at the bar. Great. <laughs> it, it's easy for me to. I can't yeah. place that one. Yeah. It's, Everything in Maine is either my, wicked, wicked good or wicked bad. Or, my well vodka back then was a burst. <laughs> well, I, I kind of know it just for being a good New Englander. That's right. So. A Bostonian. Yeah. It's yeah. wicked awesome. Yeah. It's good stuff. Yeah, he take the garbage out every now and then too. <laughs> oh, D- double accents coming out here. Oh shit! <laughs> Don't talk about Zeke that way. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> so, so, that, Pinnacle was so, so Pinnacle grew like crazy, and in uh, 2012, actually June of 2012, Jim Beam acquired Pinnacle Vodka and another small brand called Calico Jack Rum, and they also acquired the, the plant assets. The other brands that we had, the owner of the company, Paul Cologne, great guy. He sold off a lot of the other brands to Sazerac and MS Walker and a few other companies. Of course, Pinnacle was uh, the, the, the huge brand. And after Beam acquired it in June of 2012, they approached me in July and asked me if I would move back to Kentucky and head up the transition of those brands, uh, the, the Pinnacle Vodka primarily, back to their, their plant in Frankfurt. And so... Yeah, I, my wife, uh, uh, you know, she was homesick as it was, and, and our kids live back this way, and now, you know, our soon-to-be grandkids uh, before that happened. Uh, so, yeah, there was a lot of incentives for, for me to take that move and move back. So I did and came back and worked for Beam for, uh, I guess, a little over a year, making that transition happen. But then an opportunity came along uh, down in Bowling Green, Kentucky company called western spirits and um they were looking to to ramp up their uh, their operation and take it to a higher level and so they, they called me and said hey and they basically gave me an offer i couldn't refuse hired me as their vice president of operations and uh, did a lot of great things i don't know if, how familiar you are with western spirits you know they've got uh, bird dog whiskeys is their, their biggest brand calumet farm uh, the the owner of the company brad kelly you know, he owns uh, Calumet Farm and, and, and a number of other, a couple other uh, horse farms as well. A lot of in the racing industry, horse oh, racing yeah. industry. 
So I worked there uh, for, for a little over three and a half years. I actually uh, lived in Bowling Green and worked in Bowling Green during the week, and then I'd drive all the way back home to southern Indiana on the weekends, <laughs> a little bit, about a two-hour drive. It was just too long to, to commute every day. And uh, after doing that about three and a half years, I said, you know, it was getting more and more difficult. My wife uh, was having some, some health issues, so I decided, you know, hey, Time to ramp up my retirement plan. And that was not to retire, but to start my own consulting business. You know, this this business, the, the, the bourbon business in general was booming. And so I said, now's the, now's the time, you know. A lot of people out there trying to get into business and, and don't have a lot of knowledge and experience. So uh, let's do it. So that's kind of got me into my consulting business. and what connected me with uh, Grain and Barrel Spirits and uh, associated with Chicken Cog. So you're basically doing the same thing you were doing before. You just have to pay your own health insurance now. Pretty much. Yeah, that's, that's a good analogy. Yeah, <laughs> that's, that's kind of what it is. Good perspective. Yeah. It's an amazing story. You're one of those people that has done it all. You've done a little here. You've done a little there. What was your favorite thing to do working in the distillery? I mean, like I tell people, and, and this is not about me, but... I still tell people my favorite job was working on a golf course and just being out there cutting grass all day and everybody leaving me alone. I like to be left alone. Zeke looks like I just farted. I worked a golf course for a summer. It was bleeping awful. I loved it. I, I was there at four in the morning. I was golfing by two every day. Well, clearly you didn't do the kind of work at the golf course you were supposed to because I went home and I could barely move my arms and back half the time after weed eating and laying sod and all kinds of other shit all day. That's what I did all day, but then I was golfing in the afternoon. You'd take two a leave and you'd suck it up, Sally, and get out there. I just knew the low spots of the course to where the clubhouse couldn't see the cart that I was driving in. That's where Oziki took a lot of naps. Oh, no, I never got to take naps. But what was your favorite job in the (laughs) distillery? You know, I don't know that I can pin down one favorite job, to be kind of honest with you. I, I've been blessed to, to do so many things and, and meet so many people and travel the world. And it's just, it's all been, a, you know, one great ride. It really has. And you've taken that knowledge now here at Grain and Barrel Spirits and, and all this chicken cock that is on the table. Adam, I'm going to you for a second. The first one you poured for us, I'm still on that. And I know Zeke's on the second one. We like to remind people that we actually are drinking during this episode, but what's the first thing you poured for us? Tell us a little bit about that. All right, so the first thing we poured here was our eight-year-old single barrel. Uh, we called it our 160th anniversary. It was released in 2016, but the Chicken Cock brand was founded in 1856. So 160 years later, we released the 160th anniversary eight-year-old single barrel, 160 years since the brand was founded. The brand had been dead since shortly after World War II, so we resurrected it and came back, really hit the market with this a couple of years ago in 2016. And the bottle we have here tonight is actually the uh, the store-select single barrel, hand-selected by uh, Cork Dorks Midtown down in Nashville. Do they have any more of that one? They do. There's We sold a bunch at, a, at an event recently, and then there's uh, they probably still have a handful of cases left. It's done really well for them. Yeah. How much is that one? Do you know? $94.99 a bottle, I believe. And what are the stats on it? First off, Mashville, 70% corn, 21% rye, 9% malted barley. After that, the unique thing is it's the only store select barrel that came into the state of Tennessee. I was going to ask. I didn't remember yeah, seeing it anywhere one. else. There's some up. You can find some. There may be some left still up in Kentucky at a few liquor barn locations. And a couple stores in South Carolina did a few. This was the only one that came into Tennessee. What's the proof on this one? 90 proof. 90 proof. Yeah. I haven't got past the nose. I took a sip, but like I love the nose on this one. Well, you should taste it. It might be even better. I told you I had a sip of it, but I, I just love the... It's 
a little bit floral, but... So you were thinking about the nose while you were sipping it? Is this where you get your notes from? No. What? No, I you said, said I, took I, a took, sip? I took a sip, but well, like, I wasn't, I've been talking. I've been carrying you. You didn't notice anything when you sipped it? You didn't, oh, this is blah, 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 or X and Y. I noticed that Greg had a hell of a story and I had to get back <laughs> to talking to him. He was too entranced with the, the story of Sir Greg Snyder at the table. <laughs> well, not was figuring out who that commentator was. That, that's where all his notes went out the window. <laughs> and it was that her No, it wasn't Howard Cosell. <laughs> Howard Cosell sitting here drinking bourbon on a Friday night. Well, I'll, I'll come in from the uh, <laughs> the bullpen for a minute, then, John, and give you yeah. some relief, and you can get a note or two. This call to the bullpen is brought to you by Jack Daniels. Ruptured your drum, I think. I'll, I'll do all sorts of sports people for you, whatever you want. Yeah, we'll have to drink more and more. Nose-wise, <laughs> it seems like a, a vanilla and cherry Coke, or you know, vanilla and cherry mixed Coke, off of a soda fountain, just the more there's a difference to it. If you ever had a soda fountain, you ever got anything off of there, even if it wasn't those flavors, no matter what they were, they're just more pronounced and something about them just resonates so much better. That was really the first thing I thought of. Moving through those a little bit more, seemed to have a very light caramel. I mean, super light brown, not or you know, not even as dark as a you know a Werther's or something, but just just starting to cook and turn okay. was really where I, it, it put me as far as just the, how sweet it was compared to, you know, if the sugar's been cooked a little more, a little more done to them. Palette-wise, first thing I heard down was it was super sweet. As soon as it hit, it just reminded me of a plethora of candies. I'm a bit of a candy junkie. It's somewhere in the mix of nerds, sweet tarts, and cotton candy. <laughs> I, I got it all within that first splash yeah. of the tongue uh, Literally. By the um, way, Greg, we do things that are relatable. <laughs> so just so you know, those oh, are our tasting. That's notes. cool. Yeah. But yeah. but somewhere in all, in all that, just kind of you know, how, at post Halloween, little kid, are you bored at work eating sweets kind of thing? I'm still a little kid when it comes to that. And beyond that, I got a little bit of. Um, I just put cola, and I don't have a a better way to describe it other than just a, a true cola taste. And I, I've gotten that before in some of the other Indiana juice that I've really enjoyed. Folks may argue or disagree with me and saying I don't get cola out of it, but needless to say, the better Indiana stuff I've had, cola's been present. So uh-huh. I'll leave it that and keep going with it. And it actually had a, a finish that kind of, uh, I'm hit or miss on if I, you know, will note or pick up one. And literally as, you know, the conversation's moving around, I kind of got a, a caramel popcorn that kind of, like three breaths later, I was like, whoa, something kind of mm-hmm. crept back up in there. And and then it almost uh, felt a little bit like a, a cherry Ludens. Interesting. The more I sniff it, I'm getting a little bit of that cola. I hadn't had caught that before. <laughs> but maybe also all I can keep hearing in my mind is those damn orange vanilla <laughs> Coke commercials that are driving me up the wall. So now that's all I'm going to smell and taste all night is orange vanilla Coke. Thank you for that. You know? <laughs> but yeah, you know, it's like a, the old soda fountains, you know, if you grew up in a small town or something. It, it, it's interesting. You know, I've done a number of tastings and, and it's, it's interesting for me to hear people's feedback like that. It's a first cola reference I've, I've heard actually, quite honestly, but, but it, it's cool. Cause I, you know, this, we did a, a tasting, a seminar last night tasting, one of the things I always tell people is that everybody's nose, everybody's palate is different. You know, what you may pick up in a, in a particular bourbon and what I may pick up or somebody else may pick up, it's going to be, could be all over the map. But 
if you like it, then that's great. <laughs> you know, if you don't like it, that's fine too. Well, that, I already that's, that's ran into Greg of today. Uh, and and not to imagine that we was <laughs> big metropolitan yeah. area of Nashville, and <laughs> I'm visiting a, a local liquor store, and, and uh, I'm walking out, and and, and I said, hey, me, hey, you're going to be on a podcast with me later. <laughs> you got to be kidding me! You know? <laughs> but uh, so, I it's already true, though. true. I already told him your palate's broken, so he knows. <laughs> I, I that will, explains a lot, actually. I, I will say, elaborating on the the cola note. I do like flat cola. Like, it doesn't bother me at all. I almost like it better than fresh fizzy. So maybe that's a different type of cola than some people will get or experience. No, it's like flat cola. Oh, man, it's nothing better than like taking a can and popping it and then drinking it two days later. <laughs> what? Just, just get out. No. <laughs> Everybody who listened to Zeke in the past after hearing that comment is going to rethink their stance on Zeke Baker. Hey, man, I'm just telling you. That's right. It is what it is, man. It is what it is. <laughs> and now you, you mentioned Indiana, and I don't know if we've, we've touched based on this, but just so people know, you know, we're, we're very transparent in, in as much as we can be anyway uh, about the bourbons we're producing. And these particular bourbons were sourced out of uh, MGP in Indiana, as, as many, many other bourbons were that were getting started here in, in the past, uh, you know, five plus years. But as the analogy I use with people, I said, it's, it's like the four of us sitting at this table. We all pick apples from the same tree, right? I guarantee you the apple pie that you make, Zeke, or the one that Adam makes, or the one that John makes, and the one I make, they're all going to be totally different. So it's what you do with those apples that can make so much difference. And so it's just like the bourbon. You take the same bourbon, you know, some of the bourbons, you know, be it you know, Smooth Ambler, uh, Michter's, um, Angel's Envy, you know, a lot of them were, were award-winning bourbons oh, yeah. others used the same juice and didn't get the awards because they maybe presented it differently a different proof or, or what have you so uh, a lot of it's what you do with it and uh, this one I'm, I'm particularly proud of i think it, it turned out very nice and i think it's it, it kind of helps lay the groundwork for the reputation that chicken cock had many many years ago and we're trying to resurrect now to today so yeah i mean certainly anybody could go in and you know buy some barrels and and say hey this is where it came from but you know if you can't blend it correctly and you know in turn also proof it correctly and or identify which ones are single barrel winners and which ones don't let anybody pick that because even if they do and other folks taste it it all falls back on the brand right uh, but you know there's still just so much more that goes into it it's not just you know walking up to a, a coke machine and Pressing two, and yeah, that's what it's going to taste like, too. And I know what that button is. Well, that's amazing. That's, uh, you must have read the script, because that really segues right into the next bourbon, quite well, honestly. If you want to go there, let's... I was going to talk a little bit about the whiskey. Sure, go right we, ahead, We John. don't no. necessarily ha- No, have we'll, we'll get back to the 10-year-old. Go ahead. <laughs> um, I'm curious to see what, what you think. Well, no, I, I just wanted to say, and a lot of times I fill in the gaps more on the experience side of things, where I really like to think about how does it feel in... in your mouth and and how's the finish and all that other stuff but i mean i got vanilla floral maybe a little bit of dark fruit on the nose but the thing i wrote down is it's everything that i wish potpourri would actually smell like zeke and i had something a couple weeks ago and zeke's note on it was just like it it's like potpourri that you would have you would go to your friend's house and the ones that have a house that looks like it's out of a southern living catalog it wasn't that fake potpourri it's like everything i wish it was fruity and floral and just smelled really really nice i couldn't get over that smell but taste i said sweet tarts with a really nice tingle 
Then I said it drinks thicker than a 90 proof. I don't feel like it's a thin whiskey. It, it really has some volume to it rather than, you know, when I saw you today and you go, what were you picking up? And I said, I just needed an easy drinker for when yeah. I'm working late. It's a 90 proof, but it's not. I equate it almost to the 80 proof Four Roses Yellow Label, where it's an 80 proof whiskey, but it just has more oomph. It has more nose. It actually has some body to it, but it's not going to knock you on your butt if you have two or three of them. Right. And, and that's really what I got with that. It's totally not a light whiskey at 90 proof. And I think when you talk about the price of that, and that's a, you know, a $95 whiskey and I'm, you know, it's always awkward going there with the two people that are involved in it. But it's like you sit there and you go, man, well, it's not a hundred bucks, but you know, for 95 bucks, it, it actually has some oomph. It makes you feel like you're getting your money's worth at, at least. And I'm not kissing your ass because you're here. Trust me, we'd tell you, but it, it actually had some kick to it in, in the rye spice. And it actually, I felt like it wasn't light and thin. I had OFC a couple months ago and it was a hundred bucks for an ounce. And I'm like, you can tell this is really, really, really good bourbon and it was made well, but it was way too thin for me. And it's just my personal preference. I yeah. wanted something more. Sure. The finish, I said it was nice and long. It had a little bit of oak, but it wasn't overpowering. Yeah. There was nothing about it that was like, wow, this is really oak and, and tannic. It had that little oak kick to it, but it, it was not. I really liked it. I really, really liked that one. I was with Midtown when they made the decision on which barrel to pick. So we had, uh, I figured it was three or five samples. It was three samples. We had barrel uh, barrel samples, and so I was there with the staff. We went through them, and it was amazing that, again, people who have done barrel picks know this, but the barrel variation is ridiculous. You've got three picks that are the same bourbon in the same warehouse on the same floor, and the variation was insane. Sample number one was what you said you didn't get, and you were glad you didn't get. It was it was light. It was thin. The finish just died off right away on the palate. Sample two, which is what we ended up trying tonight and what we chose, barrel number 15, was full-bodied and rich and just had this this lingering finish that stuck around. And then sample three had good flavor but was way overly hot, super, super hot and alcoholic. And But the proof points, samples one, two, and three were all within two proof points of each other. But the variation was insane. And it's we, crazy. We unanimously, unanimously chose barrel number 15, and that's what you've got here. Uh, and it's, it's done very, very well. Very astute Zeke Baker on the sweet tarts. Well, well thank you there, John. I try some days. <laughs> Another thing you have to think about, though, too, is kind of, I guess, maybe play into a little more of, you know, knowing your product or, or where you're heading. There's also plenty of Indiana juice, full strength out of the barrel. Might not have been much more over 100 or even under. So when you see 90 proof, it's not like taking something that's coming out at 125, 130 and kicking that down to 90. Right. You, your percent, I guess, of diminishment, so to speak. Dilution factor. Is, yeah, is going to exactly. be so much less. Yeah. Not all 90s are equal in that sense, I would say, as far as, you know, the, the flavor they can still, you know, pack a punch with as you look at other products. Totally agree. Let's segue into the 10-year. 10-year is actually the same juice, the same same bourbon, MGP, but two years later when it became 10 years old. We had, I think the company Grain and Barrel had like 40 barrels, and we did 28 barrels of the single barrel, eight-year. And as it was getting closer to 10 years old, I, I asked the founder of Grain and Barrel Spirits, I said, you know, let me let me take the last 12 barrels and do something special with it. 
I'm a big fan of single barrels, but my biggest rub is just what Adam said. It could be so inconsistent, barrel to barrel to barrel. And and I've I've told people, I told this story last night. Uh, you guys, did you ever know Elmer T. Lee? Mm-hmm. Elmer was a dear friend of mine. And Elmer originated um, Blanton Single Barrel, okay? Every year at the Kentucky Bourbon Festival, when I, I was managing director of Wild Turkey, we'd always get our, our rooms at the Hampton Inn there in Bardstown. And Buffalo Trace would always get their rooms there as well. So we, we kind of pretty much took up the whole to- hotel. But uh, <laughs> I'd always get a hospitality suite. And so after the days or evenings events, we'd all gather back at the hospitality suite. And they'd bring some bourbons down and we'd bring ours in there. And, and we'd just get together. But Elmer and I were, were dear friends. And one evening we're sitting there. It was late at night, probably around midnight after an event. And, and I looked at Elmer. I said, Elmer, and again, if you, if you know Elmer, Elmer... Stood probably about five foot four, maybe if if that, in in his in you know high high heel shoes, I guess. But he always <laughs> he always wore that 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 chapeau type style yeah. hat, and you know, um, God love me, passed away in his, his mid nineties. But uh, just a, a delightful guy, just just full of fun and and uh, and you know, just a happy guy. And so one evening we're sitting there, and I said, I got to tell you something, Elmer. I said. Probably one of the best bourbons I ever tasted was a Blanton single barrel. And you could just see Elmer light up, man. That that his grin, smile went up from ear to ear, you know, and he's just so proud of that. And I said, but you know what, Elmer? I said, probably one of the worst bourbons I ever tasted was a Blanton single barrel. <laughs> and he, he just looked at me, his eyes got big as sauce. He said, What do you mean, Greg? And I said, exactly what I told you, Elmer. I said, some of the best bourbon I've had was a Blanton single barrel. But when you guys were selecting your single barrels, you go to a warehouse and you say, okay, this rick, this row, whatever, we're going to use that for Blanton's. You didn't sample it before you dumped it. Today, they're doing that, as most single barrels are. They learned. And it was true. I mean, the one was just as musty as could be, and it was not desirable, okay? Point being, they can be so inconsistent. And so to get around some of that inconsistency, I asked the founder of Grainer Barrel, I said, let me have the last 12 barrels. And so I said, I want to do something special. So the first thing I did, the barrels ranged in proof from 108 to 115 proof. So I started knocking them down a proof point at a time. The barrels were actually stored down at, at OZ Tyler in, in Owensboro. And so I went down there and worked with their lab, uh, lab manager and he helped me uh, knock them down. And and I kept knocking it down till I got to the point where the alcohol burn kind of subsided and, and the predominant bourbon characteristics, which is caramel and vanilla, kind of overtook the profile. And so I said, boom, that's, that's the proof we're going to bottle this at. I don't know if you guys have looked at proof yet, so I want you to taste that and kind of then we'll get your opinion before we talk about the proof. The next thing I did was to get some consistency. I took barrels that were pretty dominant in certain characteristics and I matched them up and paired them up with ones that were less dominant in those characteristics, but maybe had some favorable characteristics that would really complement it. And so I was able to get what I felt was a pretty good level of consistency from batch to batch. So when we say 10-year double barrel batch, that's exactly what it is, two barrels per batch. In today's industry, when they say double barrel, you think, well, they dumped it and they finished it in a secondary yeah. barrel. You know, <laughs> people say double barrel. A lot of people think that. Well, no, this is two barrels per batch. Uh, and so out of the 12 barrels, we made six batches. Now, there are some people, though, that 
call it a double barrel because they well, finished it. Another one. Exactly. I, I reviewed down one on, of them after. On the side of, well, how long was it in the first barrel? How long was it in the second barrel? Just to get perspective. But now I can X that off. But it's funny. <laughs> I, I do so that you guys know, and, and Greg said it, but I had this written down first. The nose for me on this, I said it was cotton candy with caramel sprinkled on the inside. But it was everything about this one, I think, has it boiled down to that. Everybody gets mad when you say vanilla because, yes, vanilla's in every single bourbon. No shit. But the vanilla caramel. I can explain that later, too, if you like. But <laughs> Well, no, but the vanilla caramel and, and fruity candy, I mean, that's everything that was this one. It was like cotton candy on the nose, but then it was like being in a candy shop. That smell you get when you walk into a candy shop, just all the, the sweet stuff, everything mixed yeah. together. That's really what I got on yeah. this one. I, personally, I, I get a little butterscotch up front in that, you know, where, where you got to kind of get that blend of the caramel, vanilla, and the, and the sweetness candy that you're talking about. Yeah. yeah, I liked it. What about you, Zeke? Nose-wise, it was, I wouldn't say it tricked me, but it, at first it smelled like wood, but not oak, which I know kind of sounds maybe half silly, but... <laughs> Like sitting there and smelling it more and thinking it. Was it more of a pine? No, like. Um, was it cedar? It, it was just blandly, you know. Teak wood. Grew up with a, you know, a fireplace and dad's like, all right, kid, go build the fire tonight. You know, as soon as that fire gets lit and going and just the, the smell that comes off of, of, you know, freshly lit wood. Maple. I could say it was, it was nondescript, but it was literally just fresh burning wood. Birch. I told you, I, I don't have a specific wood. It was just weeping willow. A, a bland, old-fashioned memory of as soon as you light a fire, and I don't know, I was in the scouts, so we around building fires a lot, but it, it just reminded me of that. Not the smoke aspect of it, but just the, the fresh lit wood. I don't know. It's what came to my mind. Um, along with that, there was just some really sweet cinnamon notes that kind of came in behind it. So, I don't know, maybe if somebody lit a fire and then there was some floral component to it, but I don't know if you're down there, you know, if we got trying to get a fire to breathe and you're blowing on the back end, trying to get that air up under there and, you know, get it going. And, but you still just smell everything coming off. Once the smoke clears and the fires are actually breathing and that wood starting to crackle, that, that was what it was. I, I don't know. I haven't and had that And all their stuff is really good about, I mean, or at least the two we've had all of their stuff, the two that we've had so far, it's really good about having a nice spice kick to it. And like that cinnamon spice that comes in on, on the palate. Yeah, palette-wise, honestly, that was my, my first note was the spice really kicked up on this one. It was much more noticeable. Uh, the first one, you know, that pop was the, just super sweet. This was much more of a spice that kind of woke you up like, hey, what are you doing there, bud? Beyond the spice, I mean, it was not simple, but it is in just a spicy, vanilla, creamiest kind of ice cream. Then I kind of went back to candy mode for a second and thought of uh, like chewing a cowtail. You know, like the caramel with the vanilla inside the middle? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I don't know what you're talking about. I just kind of stick to what I like. I stick to Snickers and Reese's. All right, so it's like a, a circle. The middle of the circle's the vanilla cream filling, whatever. Yeah, that's caramel. Or whatever you should yeah. call it, yeah. If you're chewing on one of those and, like, pop a Red Hot in there at the same time. Yeah, you don't get my size in, like, dabbling in a bunch of different <laughs> Clearly, candies. you're much more pastries than candies. No, it's can't. I mean, I love a Reese's peanut butter cup and like a Snickers bar, but I'm going right for those. See, that, that's not candy, though. That's, that's it's different. I don't I, like sugar like candies. I'm not a big sugar guy. Like I said. Yeah. I don't know. I just go right for the meat. 
Reese's and the Snickers are not meat. Oh, like it's the meat and potatoes of candy. <laughs> Maybe. Maybe. You, you know what I found interesting about this one? It's like if that first one, that, that eight-year one, and, and the age analogy I'm going to use doesn't really work, but the first one was like a kid that had a learner's permit, and the second one was like you're old enough to actually rent a car. You know, it, it just, it was so much more mature and not saying the eight year was Don't. not mature, You're but right. no. it just yeah. has this air about it. And I always say when it goes back to horse racing, you can tell kind of the seasoned veteran that has been in some stakes races because they just, the horses carry themselves a different way and the heads up a little bit more. Yeah. Yeah. That tenure almost has a little bit of, uh, I, I know I'm here to run. You know, like it, it has that part of it. Well, and to that point, I mean, we get back to, to a comment that Zeke made about the dilution factor. Only we're talking about, you know, going into the bottle and and purposely, you know, I, I kept knocking it down because I didn't want to over dilute those flavors. I wanted to keep the full, full body, the full flavors intact without over diluting it, but then try to establish some consistency. You know, by going with the six batches out of the 12 barrels as well. And I don't know, I, I was pretty pleased with the way it turned out. I mean, it's, it's not, not for everybody as, uh, as most products aren't, but uh, so were any, any of the 12, I wonder literally just so damn good. You couldn't realize making the double out of it. And trying to recall back, I think there was, there was actually four of them that I really thought were outstanding. Uh, and again, that gets back to the, the variability. Oh yeah, barrel to barrel, and uh, and there's a lot of reasons for variability, but but we can talk about that a little bit later if you <laughs> like to, and, and with, related to the barrel, because a lot of people don't realize it, but sixty to seventy percent of the flavor in a finished bottle of bourbon comes from from the wood, from the mm -hmm. oak barrel itself, and and uh, again we can elaborate a little bit more on that uh, later on, but uh, well, and I'd be interested to hear from you. I mean, we can we can divert just for a little bit, but. We're talking with Dan Gardner from Four Roses about a month or two ago. and He was talking about this concept of closed stave versus open stave. And you don't even know if you have a closed stave or open stave until you know, everything's all done. And then you split open the barrel at the very end and you see how far the bourbon got into the wood. Right. But I have to think you have an interesting perspective on this, actually having been at a cooperage. Absolutely. And... So how do you know? I mean, you have no idea what you're putting in, right? Yeah. Well, to a point, most people don't. You're right. And that's where the variability comes from. Well, okay. and I would also think that being a cooperage is doing for one specific distillery versus somebody that's independent, yeah. you would maybe focus on other factors or a little more attention to detail because you know it's your own bread and butter, well, I guess. Let me give you a little insight to something <laughs> that's coming down the pike, and, and hopefully this will generate some, some interest to, to some of your listeners, but we're, we're actually doing something very unique. Now, it's not going to be out on the market for, I'd say, at least until 2024, if not 2025 or later. I mentioned earlier, I have, I have my own consulting business, right? And one of my clients is a company in West Virginia that's building a cooperage company called West Virginia Great Barrel Company. Their stave mill has been running since uh, end of February, I guess. And their cooperage will be actually making barrels in October, November this fall. 
Well, through my relationship with them and through my relationship as master distiller with, with Chickencock, I went out there. The uh, It's in White Sulphur. Actually, the Cooperage is going to be in White Sulphur Springs. Okay. If you, I don't know if you're familiar with West Virginia. You know, I the, drove through West Virginia yeah. all the time going home. The Greenbrier. And people say, know I, the Greenbrier. I went to a wedding at the Greenbrier one time. Yeah. And I was the most podunk person there. Yeah. <laughs> well, the, the, the uh, it's, it's actually located. You're the located most podunk here. person everywhere. <laughs> Sometimes. <laughs> so... Uh, first week of May, I, I actually went out there the first week of, of March and the first week of April, conducted training at the state mill, uh, you know, kind of showing them how to cut staves, you know, how to stack them, because uh, an important element is, is the natural air drying of staves as well. You want the rain and, and the precipitation to hit those staves and heading and leach out a lot of the harsher tannins and phenolic compounds that you don't want to impart into your, your bourbon. After the training was conducted, they they pretty good at, at learning, you know, going through the learning curve pretty quick. First week of May, I went out there. And prior to that, I, I worked with the, the mill manager and asked him as he was buying logs, I want you to set out tight grain logs. Now, tight grain standard is basically 10 annual rings per inch. So if you took an average 20-inch diameter log, white oak log, 10 rings per annual inch, you take the diameter of that, it's 10 inches. So you're going to have 100 annual rings. That tree's 100 years old. I told folks, you know, people ask me all the time, well, how long does it make to take bourbon? You take that into account, it takes a <laughs> long time to make good bourbon. So I went out to the first week of May and went through the stack that he set out, and I actually called out the ones that I felt didn't meet the specifations. Uh, there was some chestnut, chestnut oak, which oh, when it's quarter sawn, it'll, it'll hold liquid and so forth. But a few other species that called out. Went through probably, gosh, somewhere between 400 and 450 logs. And then I spent three days with them cutting those logs up and, and you know, to spend most of the time up on the grading table working with his, his graders and, and inspecting, making sure that they put the right, you know, right staves and trimmed off what didn't need to be on there and so forth. So we made 600 barrels worth of staves and heading that I actually oversaw and actually personally selected for our bourbon. Now, sitting in their yard... At their Audrina Mill, this this mill, stave mill, is in a neat place. It's in between two mountain ranges in the Appalachian Mountains. And this valley, it's just a constant wind tunnel. And, you know, they've had a lot of lot of precipitation, a lot of rain. And like I said, that's going to leach out. So it's going to sit there at least seven months, maybe eight months before we actually make the barrels. And that's that's ideal. That's what you want to do is you want to get some good natural air drying, give time for the the microbial activity to to get into the wood and kind of uh, start the degradation of it to, to open up some of the, the elements to where you can actually pull out some of the, the flavors that you want to. Uh, I don't know if Dan got into the, the elements because we can get into, you know, the, the three primary components of, of white oak is cellulose, hemicellulose, and lignin. Okay. We definitely didn't get this You far. didn't get that far? <laughs> no, but I'm... I'm don't let me stop. Well, you. I, yeah. mean, I, going to the, I don't know how long you guys got. Well, Zeke might have to go home, but I live here. So oh, you got, there you, you know, go. You're fine. We're good, for, <laughs> we're good for a bit. Well, and a lot of people don't realize, and I didn't get in a lot of detail last night in the seminar that we conducted, but, but white oak is one of the species that if you quarter saw it, it won't leak. It, it's liquid tight. And when I say quarter saw it, you know, if you take a, a log and you just keep sawing a piece off it, that's flat sawing. That's where you get that, you know, you see on desktops and tabletops, real flowery, wide grain. That's flat sawing. White oak will leak like a sieve if you cut it like that. So what quarter sawing, what you do is you take the log, you cut it to the stave length or heading length, depending on the knots and imperfections that you, you, you see in the log. 
And then you cut it in half, that piece in half, and then you take the half and you cut it in half. So you get four quarter bolts out of that section of log. When you look at the end of a, a white oak log, you'll see the annual rings all the way out to the sap and into the bark. And then if you look, there's little squiggly lines that go from the center of the, the log out to the, onto the outer edge of it. Those are called medullary rays. Medullary rays, or as this tree's growing, that's what's really carrying the, the, the moisture, the water, and the, the minerals to help that tree grow. It's basically the vein system. Yeah. Okay. Vasculature from middle to outside. Pardon? Basically the vasculature going from the middle to the outside. Exactly. So, so what, what you're doing when you, uh, cut that, that log in, in quarter bolts, what they do is they take it and they run it through a, a bandsaw and they cut a, a stave piece or a heading piece off one side. Then they flip that bolt and they cut a piece off the other side. Then they flip it back and they cut a piece off and they flip it back until that piece is gone. That, that whole quarter bolt's gone. What that does is it keeps the medullary rays horizontal or no more than 45 degrees through that piece of wood, which keeps it tight grain. A lot of people don't know that's one of the elements why white oak is used. It contains tyloses, which tyloses is, is clogs the cellular structure. It won't allow it when it's quarter sawn, it won't allow it to, to leak. Red oak, I don't care how you cut red oak. It'll leak like a sieve. You can quarter saw it all day long and then and build a barrel out of it, and it'll just pour right out of it. So that's one of the reasons. The other reason I was just getting ready to talk about was the three primary elements, cellulose, hemicellulose, and lignin. Cellulose is a, the cellular structure, basically the, the strength that holds the wood together. Yeah, I have a lot of cellulose. Well, <laughs> most of us do. <laughs> I was trying to get Zeke while he was sipping. I know. <laughs> as long as you don't have many other loses, that's all. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the, the hemicellulose is where the polysaccharides are, the wood sugars, okay? And, you know, you remember back in chemistry class or whatever, you took sugar and put it in a spoon and held it over a Bunsen burner. What did it do? It started to melt and caramelize on you. Well, that's what you're doing when you're heating up that barrel. The same principle happens with the lignin. When you're heating up that lignin, it converts the lignin into vanillin, which is the vanilla notes. Okay. Now, when you build a barrel, some companies nowadays, some cooperages to to make it fast because they're trying to get production out, they just char the barrel, set it on fire and char it. Well, you're going to get some of that caramelization or what they call red layer just on the inside of that, uh, on, on that char. But it's not driven deep into the wood. You're talking about the soak line. Most bourbon will soak into a stave halfway. Staves are 15 sixteenths of an inch to an inch, inch in thickness. So it'll go about a half inch into the wood. Well, if you're just charring it and you're catching on the end, man, you got a lot of, of uh, hemicellulose and lignin that didn't get converted into those desirable flavors that you want to extract out of the wood. What happens is, is a, the, the best way to build a barrel is you, you toast it. You give it a long toast and you, and you convert that, that conversion of the caramel substance and vanilla and you drive it deep into the wood so that when you do char it, you don't burn it off. So the char layer works like a charcoal filter where you strip out the graininess flavor. If you taste that bourbon whiskey right off a of still, you can taste the corn and the rye or the wheat, depending on the mash bill and the malted barley. But the, the charring layer works like a charcoal filter, strips that out, and then it picks up the caramel and vanilla. So that's where you're getting in a lot of, a lot of the other flavors through, through time, through again, through the maturation process and, and the oxygenation process during maturation. You're going to get the, the esterification and transesterification of, of compounds and, and flavors that, that build up and create, and then they get destroyed, and then they rebuild up. And it's just a, it's a neat process 
from a chemistry perspective. I'm not a chemist. So don't get me wrong. <laughs> I'm not a chemist by any means, but, but I've been around it and, 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 and have been, been a part of it for so long. It's, it's a fascinating process. Well, it, it, it totally makes sense as well, especially with the, you know, I would at least assume most of that came from the experience with Brown Foreman. I was fortunate enough to do a single barrel pick down at Jack Daniels a few months back. At the beginning of the pick, they went through and explained, you know, that whole process to us and that why the toasting meant so much more and that little extra time of toasting it, you know, prior to charring it is what allows so much more flavor to come out, why they can put a less than six-year bourbon out and it have as much flavor as it packs with, you know, half the time plenty of other places are having to age their their juice to get it out the door. Very true. And I picked up on a fair amount of it. Part of it, you know, we're also tasting through it and – one of those experiences where you just you're taking everything in and by that you miss half what you're you're getting while you're there because you're just taking in the whole atmosphere so hearing it again in a much more uh able to focus kind of you know scenario is is wonderful because i'm like all right this is what he was saying and that's why it mattered and you know really circling back and putting everything back together in the mind well all all these this wood that i went out and and kind of oversaw the process you know it's it's sitting out drying right now well in december or early january i'm going back out to west virginia and i'm actually going to oversee the process of building those barrels make sure they're constructed properly properly make sure they're toasted properly to our specifications and so the bourbon that we make in in january at, at bardstown bourbon company who we've got a collaborative distillation program with and, um, and hold that thought because we're going to get to that good, good. in a little bit. But, but uh, yeah, the, these barrels are going to be used for that bourbon. So I'm excited about it. I don't know that anybody's ever doing it. Something unique in the industry and the fact that uh, I've been blessed to have that experience and, and uh, to try to do something a little bit unique that, that nobody else is doing. So. Do you need us to pick you up? And take it. <laughs> uh, we'd be we'd be interested in in that whole prop, yeah, but that could be arranged. <laughs> the question I have for you is the desire to get the tight grain. Yes, is that something just because you don't want leakage while it's aging, no. or what? What is the advantage? The tight of grain. That? When 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 I said like ten rings per inch, okay. I mean most of it is probably twelve to sixteen rings per inch, okay. A really slow, and and part of the beauty of being in West Virginia. The majority, if not all of their white oak, is coming out of the Appalachian region. The Appalachian Mountains are so rocky and rough that it, it promotes slow-growth oak. Probably one of the highest percentage of slow-growth oak you're going to find in any region, just for that factor. Now, you go up to Minnesota, because of the cooler temperatures, you're going to get slow-growth oak as well. You know, a lot of, of wine barrels, their staves are produced out of Minnesota because of the, the slow-growth growth. The, the density and the, the concentrate. What you're doing is you're getting a, a, a dense concentration of that hemicellulose and lignin that you're wanting to convert into the flavors. So if you take a, a you know fast say, say on a south slope of a of a swamp down in Alabama or whatever, you know, I mean the hot hot temperature and it's growing fast, and so you got maybe four to five rings per inch. Okay, if if, if less than that, maybe you don't have that concentration and density of those uh, uh, chemical conversion factors that you're wanting to, to generate your, your flavors out of. To a degree, wouldn't that also be a, a pretty indicative marker of age? Because as it gets older and older, those rings are going to have to get packed in tighter and tighter and then pushed out Not necessarily. Out Not necessarily, no. no. Okay. I mean, you'll find some oak where it's funny, you'll, you'll see a, a, a section of it that's really tight and then all of a sudden, for whatever reason, they had a really 
hot year, or maybe there were some trees cut down or fell down where the canopy opened up. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, the, the tree grew faster. So now all of a sudden the, the, the rings are a lot wider, mm -hmm. but, but the majority of this, you know, it, you can, you take a look at the end of log and you can pretty much select them out, which ones you want to want to use or not. But it's, uh, that's the beauty of the, the West Virginia area is it's, it's got a high percentage of very tight grain oak. Nice. Yeah. What I find amazing here is, is just hearing Greg talk about this and seeing some pictures of him actually in West Virginia picking out staves. I mean, picture a winemaker out in Napa Valley or in Bordeaux. That winemaker is not going and hand-selecting staves to make their oak barrels to age their wine in. There's nobody in this industry doing this. But there Greg is, because he has his experience at the Brown Foreman Cooperage, going and hand-selecting not only the logs, but then going to oversee the staves and the toasting and the charring and everything. He is handcrafting our barrels that our, our, our bourbon is going to be aged in. It's something totally unique to put our own unique stamp on the whiskey, which is again, un unheard of right now. Nobody else is doing anything like that. Yeah, I mean, to me, I'd almost, you know, equate it to, you know, as consumers, connoisseurs, whatever, you know, we get all giddy and excited that we're going to, you know, pick a private barrel. Well, as much influence as that wood is going to have on the juice inside of it, he's doing the same thing just a step ahead almost. And I can imagine probably equally as uh, giddy as excited as we yeah, are I, I am. in the other I, situation. I'm pumped. I, <laughs> I hope I live long enough to see it. <laughs> Well, I mean, if you think about it, when, at the point in Elmer's life, you know, going back to that, when he started putting out those single barrels, it's yeah. like, shoot, he was laying those down. Oh, yeah. And and by the time he realized, what was it? I mean, what was the first single barrel? It was 80-something. Um, the first Blanton's? The, the first, first Blanton's. Uh, was it 86? Yeah, I can't remember the but year, it was, but it, it was, was in that, that, that yeah. time frame. Sure. It was late yeah. 80s. It was after 85. Yeah, so if you think about it, some yeah. of those ones... You know, once you're getting to uh, a few years in, he he didn't see those. Yeah, yeah. It's it's a crazy thing about whiskey is is it's always a yeah. crapshoot, right? You know, you never sure. know. Going back to this ten year, and you were going to say something. Well, about yeah, it. actually, I just I just uh, I don't know that you guys got to read the label or look at it, but so what? What do you th you know? You had some 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 very interesting comments, but the proof. What do you think of the proof? Say as compared to the ninety proof. And do you have any idea what proof it is? Did you look at it? I didn't look at it, and I would just say, with the extra kick and extra spice that was in there, I'd at least put it at a little above 100, probably. Okay. I can't answer. I know. Yeah. <laughs> okay. I, I'll, I'll be yeah. honest. Well, and, and no, that's fine. Play. I appreciate the honesty, but that's, it's 104 proof. And, and it's, it's amazing the tastings we've done since then. A, a number of people, of course, everybody, if, if the three samples we got here tonight, if, if I... Sample 100 people, 33 are going to like that one, 33 are going to like that one, 34 are going to like that one. You know, yeah. I mean, that's basically the way it adds up. But uh, it's 104 proof. And a lot of people say, wow, that's smoother than, than the eight-year, the 90 proof. And it's everybody's palate's different. But, uh, again, it was by design trying to, to, to optimize the, the level of flavors without diluting them too far, but, but uh, trying to get some consistency as well. Going back to something Zeke was asking you before and, and just kind of wanting to revisit that, is it something where because it's the double barrel and it's the blend that you're proofing it down or you're just to kind of maintain consistency and a flavor profile that you want across everything? Or is it because I feel like sometimes at that point you're like, I have these barrels, they'd be great if I put this out kind of at cast strength. 
And is it something that when you try to blend them together at cast strength, it's just not giving you what you want? Yeah, it, it's all different. I mean, it, it just you're right. It, it's a matter of knowing what you're working with and trying to, to establish what, what's the best way to present it. It, it yeah. really is. Yeah. I'm just surprised you didn't have the, that one or two hanger barrels. And you're like, yeah, well, you I said, know I, I said mean, I was going to blend these, but... Yeah, but oh, yeah. I, that one, I just can't do it. I'm serious. As I recall, <laughs> four of the 12 were just phenomenal. But but the others were, were close, you know. There, there was definitely variation, yeah. but not so much that, that, you know, we were off the map type of thing, you know. It's, it's with this, the process with this bourbon, I feel like, pardon me, Greg, I feel like Greg almost sells himself short in this a little bit because you don't realize how painstaking of a process this was. Takes 12 time. barrels, trying them all, proof point by proof point to determine what he thought was the perfect proof. And then taking those 12 barrels, 1 through 12, and marrying them individually, trying one with 12, trying one with 11, trying one with 10, oh, et cetera, okay. and finding the perfect balance of it. Uh, and then settling on what he thought was the perfect proof of 104. And the goal there was, as we talked before about the inconsistency of single barrels, right? Well, here he wanted to have something that has a consistent flavor profile in a tiny batch. I mean, it doesn't get any smaller batch than two barrels at a time. <laughs> but then also trying to find that perfect proof, the balance between people who love super high proof cast strength and people who are perfectly fine with 80 proof. Yeah. This is that perfect balance where you don't have to add water or an ice cube. You can if you want to, but it the flavors just sing out of the bottle at this proof is what he found. Uh, and I, I, I agree with it. It's, it's funny because it's I tend to drink almost every bourbon with an ice cube or two. Uh, I want a little bit of you know water to open it up just like air does wine. I want a little bit of a chill because I'm a wimp and my teeth get freaking you know <laughs> awful high proof alcohol at room temperature. Um, and but this I, is why he'll never leave sales and marketing. <laughs> <laughs> this is why I have a degree in communication. And, you know, yeah. Um, but but truthfully, if I drink a warm high proof bourbon, I mean it's, it's hot like anything else, but it it kills. If I drink something super chilled on ice, it kills because I'm a wimp. But what surprised me with these, and this is dead serious with any other, I love lots of bourbons out there, but I actually like these neat more than anything. The first two we tried, when we get to the third, we'll change that up. But I like these two neat, whereas most bourbon I do tend to prefer with an ice cube or two. Well, at, at the same time, one of the things that Zeke and I would tell you is drink it how you like it. Exactly. And exactly. As yeah. long as you're drinking it, we're fine. Yeah. All, all joking aside, you know, that's why you are on the sales team and not on the production team, but... Drink it how you like it. There's no shame in your yeah. game. Not at all. Not at all. And I, I personally as well, if I drink bourbon, I'll, I'll put a little ice in it because it is. It totally will change. You open up some of the flavors and totally change the, the whole, whole complex of it. But this year, I don't know if you guys picked it up. I On the 10-year also, I, I get, to me, a great mouthfeel. It's got a little creaminess on the finish and the mouthfeel. And I pick up a little dark chocolate. Now, I know you guys were talking about candies and sweetness, but I pick up a little dark chocolate as well. So anyhow, I, it's one of my favorites. I've always gotten a little bit of that sort of dark chocolate cocoa powder. Yeah. Not necessarily like a brick of chocolate, but it's like that, the Hershey special dark powder that you cook with. I've always picked up a little bit of that on the, uh, on the 10 year as well. Yeah. I think that the, the chocolate scale in general, you know, when you, when you do get into bourbon is, or what color is it? Yeah. <laughs> Cause then you, you know, you, is it milk? Is it milk? Is it dark, white? Dark? Yeah. Cause it's talking 70% cacao. Exactly. Like 90% cacao. <laughs> yeah, I always like when people say cacao. Same thing with caramel, though. Like you, you, you have to have a color, you know, you know, kind of, uh, yeah. I guess like you're doing a pH test almost. But all right, what color was it? Because then I know what, what flavor you're really dialed into because you can't, you can't just use the bland word of, you know, caramel or chocolate. And like, come on now, be a little more specific. 
<laughs> yeah. It, we we have to move forward, though, because Zeke is going to turn into a pumpkin, and I want to talk about what you guys are doing in the future. Let's move to this beer barrel select, and I'm just going to mention before we get into this, this is a six-barrel batch. It's 45% ABV, 90 proof, and you tell me the whole rest about this one. Okay, real quick. When we made the 10-year-old double barrel batch, 12 barrels, right? Made six batches out of 12 barrels. I took six of those barrels, and I gave them to Goodwood Brewing Company in Louisville, Kentucky. I don't know if you guys are familiar with Goodwood. Yep. They make some fantastic beer. Uh, but they have a walnut brown ale that I, I – one of my personal favorites, actually. And they took those six barrels – chicken cock 10-year double batch barrels and they put their walnut brown ale in it to finish their beer in those those barrels it was in there a little over a month and then when they dumped the beer out of it i got the barrels back and put bourbon back into it okay uh i would monitor it every few weeks and that to see how it was progressing but after a little over six months i felt you know it was going to pretty much pretty much picked up all the flavor it was going to from, from the beer that was in the barrel. And so that's when we decided to, to bottle it. And it was here just to, I don't know, hit, hit the market. Yeah, 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 that. So, uh, so, but it's really unique. Um, I probably shouldn't comment to you guys taste it, but if, if you're, you're picking it up and you're smelling it and you're tasting it and you're expecting bourbon, no, that's, that's, <laughs> not, that's not it, okay? We were trying to, to come up with something unique. And I'll tell you up front. To me, and I, I'm not a scotch drinker, okay, but I like a good Irish whiskey. To me, it tastes more like Irish whiskey. Hmm. John's big on those. I'm. I might have one when he pours me one. Okay. So you're even if it was the note that was there, I probably wouldn't pick it up or get it immediately just because I. Well, uh, and what type of beer was this? Right this was Walnut Brown Ale. Yeah. Sorry, I interrupted you. Oh, you're fine. I yeah. was. I was rude. I really like you too. I don't really like this one. Okay. Uh, I, that's and okay. that's okay. That's I all mean, right. it's, it's, no. I love like Bellmead's Black Bell because it's a stout. I mean, I know I gravitate more towards a stout. And it's just one of those ones for me. It's like the beer that I'm getting. It's great. If you like walnut brown ale, you are going to love this. It's so predominant and it's just not a yeah. beer that I would go towards. But other than that, I mean, it's good whiskey, you know, like you can tell it's made yeah. well. There's nothing I can complain about with how it was made. It was just, I got, it's it's exactly what you said. You're going to get, it's like, the only notes I really took of it, it's like, you could definitely tell it's a beer from the nose. Yeah. You could definitely tell it's a beer from the taste. Well, and, uh, the malted barley is what, what I pick up right off the front actually and it's almost like it smells almost like being in a fermenter room is is what i got exactly where i was going because it was funny we mentioned nose and you know and tasting bourbon because at a pick at buffalo trace we were in the blanton's warehouse which i didn't know it till that day is basically directly downwind of the fermenters and they had all the windows open right next to where we were picking and, you know you're trying to nose your stuff as you get to work through it and all you can smell is being downwind of, you know, the fresh make coming off. And I, I mean, I had to walk off like two or three aisles down and into the rick to finally get far enough away from those windows to where, all right, I can actually smell what's smell. in my cup, yeah, not what's sure. just around me. And as soon as I got my nose near, I was like, whoa, I, I've had that once or twice before. And I, I just wrote down, you know, it, it big old pop of, you know, you know, fresh make, fresh mass, whatever you want to call it. At some point, I, I guess I got some, uh, you know, citrus in there, but it, it was like a lemon gin fizz 
<laughs> I, I mean, I don't know. There, there, yeah. there, there was like some citrus in there and just a little bit of, you know, the, yeah. the kind of fizziness and what was going to come off of that. I don't know. I, I don't even think I've had more than a handful of those in my life, but it came out somehow. Palette wise, I put down that it was caramel and oats, but no chocolate. Lots of oats. Because I feel like a lot of times you get those in your mind and all three run together. But it was just those first two, but not, right. not a drop of chocolate at no, all. You're right. You could, you know, still tell you had some white dog aspects to it almost, I felt like, or just a really sweet beer. And then it kind of almost made me think back to maybe like a, a really lightly colored German beer. Is it, what is it, Hogarden or something that's real light like that yeah, and citrusy? Yeah. But, you know, just super, just barely even yellow kind of beer, but not cheap stuff. Just that difference in flavor. Are you okay, Zeke? That's, that's kind of where I went with it. And, and surprisingly... He didn't say yellow. <laughs> that's for the wood, not the beer. <laughs> uh-huh. It's one of the things where I think if you approach it opposite from trying to analyze it as a bourbon drinker, like if I don't smell this and I just take a pull, it's pretty damn good, I think. Yeah. But if I smell it, then it just, you know, you have that predisposition towards no, that, it. That's exactly why um, I made those comments about, you know, the mindset is, well, this is a bourbon. No, just it's whiskey. So, so get, get, you know. So I had a neighbor that, that told me that once. And it was funny because after we had the first Black Bell, John was a big fan of it. And I could not care less for it, honestly. And uh, I was talking to him about it. And I was like, you know, just it, the mind, I just couldn't, it did something to me. And he's like, well, I mean, it's simple. People make beer, they want to make a product, and, you, and you, your inclination is to want to drink more. When you're drinking high-proof whiskey, you're not supposed to just want to drink more. You know, you sip it, savor it, and enjoy it. So it, depending on how, if you're getting both of those responses in, in the brain at the same time, yeah, you're probably just going to be like uh, like brain-dead stumped almost. With this, I, I don't get that aspect of it. I, I think you could just throw it back, for lack of better words, and... And it, it still have enough smoothness to it, and, and that yeah. it's definitely more beer forward than whiskey forward. I think that's, that's where I'm kind of trying to go with that. As opposed which I don't to, think is a bad thing. If you like a brown ale, this is going to be your jam. I exactly. mean, if you don't mind that, and I think this is one of those nice ones of you have somebody who's predominantly a beer drinker, and you go, "Hey, let me show you something. I might get you into whiskey a little bit." This is a great one that if you got a buddy who's a beer drinker and you're nudging them in right. slowly but surely, give them this one. Or there's, oh, keep going. Or to Greg's point, if somebody who's an Irish whiskey drinker who typically doesn't like bourbon, this is a great entree into that because I, you do pick up more of that that malted barley note from it, and you just it's got a totally different flavor profile from your everyday bourbon. And it's funny, I love Irish whiskey, and I'm the one out of the two of us. That when we dabble outside of here, Zeke normally dabbles with clear spirits, and I normally dabble with other whiskey and Irish whiskey and uh, scotch and, and things like that. I don't mind going around the globe and Japanese whiskey, but it's almost got too much flavor to be an Irish whiskey. Exactly. But, and that's what yeah. I'm saying. When the, the nose and the initial nose and, and palate that I get is, is it's more of an Irish whiskey than it is. But the, the caramel and vanilla kind of evolve and open up. And then you get some of that sweetness on the finish to, to me and get some of that nutty flavor on the finish as yeah, well. I laugh even more, and it's par for the course, honestly, because I feel like on paper, this would probably be John's jam, and I would be the one turning my nose up. <laughs> <laughs> we were two pours into it, and yep, exact opposites again. <laughs> That's what I love about you, Zeke. It's- 
two steps forward, two steps back hey, we come together. At least we're sets. inconsistently yeah. consistent instead of the other yeah. way around. We come together because opposites attract. <laughs> and that's what's great about the whole business is, as we said before, there's no right or wrong about it. And in a room of 30 people at a seminar last night, we sold 10 bottles of beer barrel select. Yeah. I mean, because yeah. people, people who came it. there because they want to try bourbon and they're like, wow, I wouldn't have ever thought that this would be something I'd like. It's totally different. It's not like bourbon, but yeah. damn it, I like it. Well, no, as we, as we talked, I, I had one earlier from someone else that was also MGP. And beer this is finished. not MGP, though, by the way. I forgot oh, to mention that. Yeah, this our is beer not, select is okay. our first 100% Kentucky. Yeah. Okay. It is all Kentucky. But regardless so of that, that, I had a beer finished. Bardstown or no? No. No. Okay. NDA, I'm sure. But exactly. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, I had a beer finished this afternoon, and literally I had one sip, and it's like, no way. I'm not even going to attempt to test this again to see if I'm, I'm just got it wrong the first time. I was like, this, this is down the drain. Yeah. And most beer finishes I haven't pinned too big on, but like I say, I mean, especially if you don't just spend too much time nosing this and just drink it. When we talked about it earlier, you put an ice cube in that too, and it's amazing the flavors that it really opens up and, and, and evolves into. It's 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 pretty interesting. Yeah, that's the thing to do. Put a drop of water into it. That's just like why it. I just did that second ago, Zeke was add a little water to it and swirl yeah. it and it just the flavors totally evolve. Are you able to say anything about this one about age or yeah, I, I, I'll tell you exactly. It was We had a, a, a blend of a very young up to old age. It, it actually, the youngest was, I think, 13 months up to 11 and a half years old. So uh, it, it's a blend of, of, of whiskeys, but... It's good because I didn't see straight on it. So I no, knew no, it's I, not straight, no. That I knew it had something in there, but no. it's a six-barrel batch, so it was 13 months all the way to 11 and a half years. Yeah, guys. and that's when we did. Actually, it was just a little bit less than 1,800 bottles total, so it's, it's actually <laughs> proof fast. So. 90. It's 90 proof. Man, so you put a splash of water in there, and it goes to, what, 70 proof? And if the, that much, yeah, it would have been how much you put it in. And it's straight drinkable. <laughs> yeah. and, uh, and by drinkable, and by drinkable right? I mean a, a big boy drink, not a sip. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. uh, that could end badly. <laughs> <laughs> That'd be good, uh, you know, campfire passing around material. Yeah. Maybe you just go ahead and throw a little water in there ahead of time. Just, all right, send them around a few times and we'll, we'll see how many times it'll go. Before we close up, because we have been talking for a very, very, very long time. Sure we have. But this has been great. I want you to come back. I want to talk more about the whole thing about a cooperage and the different stuff like that. I think we could do two hours on that subject alone. I I at least have to to sneak in one or two questions. Yeah, Uh, go ahead. And you don't have to elaborate. That's all right. No problem. In your opinion, has the quality of the wood gotten worse? Whether it be it's just not aged as much because in general, maybe not even bourbon, but more is being cut, more is being used. It doesn't have time to age appropriately. That's kind of where I'm going with the worse. I understand. Now, it, it's it's like anything else. Um, you look back at history. Perfect example. 2014. There was a, a wood shortage, white oak shortage. What happened was we had a very wet fall. We had a very wet winter had a very wet spring and so the loggers couldn't get into woods to harvest white oak so all of the cooperages that were making barrels at that time were short they couldn't get the logs they, they had the ability to make the barrels they just couldn't get the wood and so what happened is a lot of most distilleries 
got cut short on what they were planning on producing that year in 2014. 2015 comes along and now all of a sudden the, the you know, forests dry up and the loggers are out there busting their tails trying to cut as much as they can. Well, guess what? That wood's not sitting and air drying as long as it needs to. And they're getting staves and heading, pushing it through the pre-dryer, pushing it through the kiln as quickly as they can. So it, it's, it's cyclical. You know, there, there's just like a lot of things. Uh, depending on the conditions and, and the, uh, you know, maybe environmental and maybe other things that, that, that impact it. But that definitely can happen for sure. You know, you can talk about quality of wood and, and, and the barrels themselves because they do play such an important role in the finished product. I just feel like that ends up being a, a common denominator more times than not when you, you see the discussions over, you know, why, you know, the dusties from the 80s and the 90s just inevitably seem to taste better. Then everybody asks why. Well, is it, you know, the grain? Is it, you know, something in distilling or is it just the fact the barrels are throwing them in just doesn't have enough to pull out of it what they used to well this goes back to a a big fight that zeke and i have all the time and and i kind of say this just to push his button anyway but we talk about pre-fire versus post-fire heaven hill i basically tell him you know they're using a vendome still they get the same exact recipe that they had before there's not that much variance on how they were making it and and what they were doing before and after the fire. We seem to think it might come down to wood. We're not 100% Essentially, sure. Essentially, I believe there's a difference and John doesn't. And I just like to annoy him and say <laughs> that there isn't any difference. But again, you know, the it's into the what your palate tells you, okay? You could probably debate it with... My palate just tells me to annoy Zeke. Oh, I see. That, that's yeah. kind of what it says. <laughs> you know, they, they, uh, that particular situation, you know, yeah, they had a, a tragic fire. Their distillery burnt down, and they ended up acquiring uh, the old uh, United Distillers, or which is now Diageo facility downtown Louisville. And so they're making their bourbon there, and just recently had a huge expansion, and they're cranking it as hard as they can go. You say, you know, Vendome made the same still, but I can tell you, stills can, can have such a huge impact on the flavor of the whiskey, the distillate coming out. To save money nowadays, a lot of people are going stainless steel, copper steel. Good example, when I, I managed wild turkey, about every 10 years, we'd have to actually remove, you know, we had a four foot diameter, 40 foot high column still, all right? About every 10 years, we'd have to remove and uh, that still because it was, you know, it was bolted together in sections. And so we took the roof off the, the still house and actually took it out section with a big crane <laughs> and sent it to Vendome and they, they refurbish it because that copper with all the, the mash and, and liquid running through it, it just get paper thin. And all the, you'd find some of the, the stripping plates kind of just had just disintegrated and fallen down to the next one. So, you know, and it was 100% copper. Nowadays, uh, Vendome is a lot of the stills they're making. They're stainless steel to a point. They still have copper because you got to have a certain amount of copper in, in the uh, the upper level to to get the right you know pull out the, the sulfide or sulfur com- compounds and what have you. But uh, um, so yeah, there's there's a number of things that can impact it and, and create that variability. Zeke, any other questions before we move forward? Well, just to be conclusive on all three that we've uh, been fortunate enough to have. What's what the price? The, what were the prices on the second two? And then we can, you know, give an official rating here. I don't want to leave anybody guessing on what our thoughts were on anything. Absolutely. So, I mean, the first one we tried, as I mentioned, uh, it's, it was the 
store select, eight year old single barrel, that's a $95 retail. That was standard retail, whether it was a store select or somebody just, you know, purchased a six pack of it at a retail store. There, that's no longer available. There's a few stores still have some, but not much. It was, as Greg mentioned earlier, you know, 30 barrels and it's when it's gone, it's gone. All three of these actually are, are one-off productions. When they're gone, they're gone. The, the second one you tried, the, uh, the 10-year-old double barrel batch was uh, less than 2,000 bottles, only released into four states. It was a $250 retail. Um, and oh, then screw the first one. I'm going to drink more of this one. There you go. <laughs> what was pour it? Yourself it was one. $250. Good pour, good pour. Uh, and then the final one, the newest one, the Beer Barrel Select, is an $80 retail. Also less than, uh, what, 1,800 bottles? Less than that, I believe, Greg? Yeah, it's actually 1,796 to be exactly. exact. Exactly. <laughs> After we pulled a few off the uh, line ourselves to take home. Yeah, that's the, right. Uh, that's right. We're more like 1,790 after yeah, that. But yeah. yeah so. um, that's an $80 retail and also only available in, I think, six states. Um, and it was, again, another one-off of just six barrels. So when, yeah. it's, when it's done, it's done. And honestly, at the state of Tennessee here, we got... Uh, in Middle Tennessee, we got 35 six packs to sell, and that's it. And there's maybe five more I'm going to sell, and that's it. And then West Tennessee got 35. Alabama gets a few, and that's it. It's gone. It's really funny, Zeke. I think it was made for this because if I was going down the line here, I would go buy bar pass. For the eight year, I'd buy it. For the 10 year, I'd get it at a bar. You sounded like you liked the 10-year more, though. I did like the 10-year more. Okay, I like that. I like the 8 more. I like the 10 more, but it's one of those things where I'm just happy. I would be happy to go out to a bar and, and get it on a special night. I probably wouldn't drop. I mean, it's just tough to drop 250 at, oh, the, yeah. at, at one time. But the beer, I, I personally would pass, but I probably have to change it to a bar because I would have it. I'd be perfectly fine ordering it and having it at a bar. And knowing that I had it to say that, but I would have to have it first. I was lucky enough just to have it here. I don't think I could do bar on the beer one. I think it's one of those things, you know, some nights or, you know, whatever you're in the mood for. When you get started on certain things, then you just keep that train going. And I guess just guessing at what an MSRP is versus, you know, markup at, you know, bar, restaurant, et cetera. If I'm in the mood for that, I'm just going to go find a bottle. <laughs> and at the 80 bucks, the bottle might be gone in a day or two, but that's still going to be a better tab than I had getting like two pours of the bar and then going home and be like, I just wanted more of it. Because honestly, that that is once that gets to you and you're on that, that profile, I, I think it's, you know, you're on that train. You're not going to give it up. Was that your favorite of the whole thing? No, I like the eight the most. The, the beer surprised me the most just because literally I don't think I've had one that I really enjoyed of any beer finish. You just love sweet tarts. Oh, he tasted that and everything, didn't he? Uh, he no, t- not, it was the eight year was the big one. The, <laughs> the, the, the ten, I could tell the difference in age. Like it just kind of lost a little bit of the youthful pop that I gravitate towards. I could see the the single barrel eight years being a buy, the the ten year probably being a a pass to a bar, you know, or if I knew someone that liked that difference in profile, that's not quite where I am. And the beer, it'd be one of those. You know, obviously it may not happen being such a small release, but if I had that inclination or moment of like, yeah, that's what I'm craving tonight, you're just going to grab one and go to town on it. it, it it's not an every day, not even every month, but uh, just a random like 48 hours of that's what I feel like drinking. I just wish I had more disposable income because I'd probably buy more than one of those 10 years. <laughs> I, I I liked it, but I I knowing that putting it in the perspective of family first and getting slapped for spending too much on whiskey, that would be a bar for me. Well, enough. when your house is finished down three blocks down from mine, 
come on over and I'll, I'll pour you a few good pours to take you. <laughs> I know. I'm very excited. So uh, a caveat to this is that when I, where I am building a house, Adam and I are going to be neighbors. So we are going to be sitting out. I figured out, by the way, don't tell anyone. I figured out how to get a fire pit in my backyard. Ooh, nice. So when they lay the patio, they can put a hole in the cement that they actually lay. And as long as they pour a hole in there, I can build a wall and not have to go to HOA. Or you could just get one of the gas ones that I have on my patio. Oh, no. I'm, I'm actually going <laughs> to do it. My, I want wood. I want Fair Zeke enough. to come over. And then what we're going to do is we're going to start experimenting. And I'm going to burn different awkward. types of wood. And then he can tell me the type of wood that he got. He tasted. <laughs> you know, he could tell me the type of wood we got. But every night I'll burn a different type of wood. I'll be like, okay, tonight is going to be fine. Redwood. You're supplying the booze for all this. Yes. All I heard was experiment, Zeke. Oh, everybody Different knows. Types of wood. I don't know where what you're talking about right now. I'm going to drink some more bourbon. I'm a little confused. <laughs> Zeke and I have experimented way too much. It's okay. With all different types of wood. Jesus. <laughs> every every single time we do a podcast, it's another experiment. <laughs> as long as the guests keep agreeing with me, buddy, I'm on the winning side here. But long story short, we talked about all this stuff. Tell me about, now that we're two hours into this podcast, but tell me about what you guys are doing moving forward. I, I know we're probably going to sell this short, but you have moved all the distilling from MGP over to Barstown Bourbon Company. Yeah, correct? actually, MGP was not distilling for us. We, we acquired aged bourbon already in barrels from them. And so part of the plan of... of uh, uh, Marty, the, the the founder of Grain and Barrel Spirits, was to resurrect it, uh, the brand back to Kentucky. And, and Adam, you know, spoke er, earlier about, you know, it originated in 1856 in, in Paris, Kentucky. And so the vision, Marty's vision was to bring it back and resurrect it back to Kentucky. So that's when he hired my services to help him uh, with that effort. And uh, Steve Nally, who's a master distiller at, at uh, Bardstown Bourbon Company, is a good friend of mine. And we looked at a couple options, but uh, I'd done some work with the guys at Bardstown Bourbon Company, and they have this collaborative distillation program. They don't let anybody in it, but again, I've had a relationship and got to know David Mandel and Dan Lindy and that bunch. And, and Great and group of guys, awesome guys. I just want to say. I, I got to go up there. I, I know I'll be going up there again, but I, David just saw me at, at the bar, and he recognized my T-shirt, and he pulled me in the back, and he said, hey, let me come show you everything. Yeah. And they're so transparent. There's so much good stuff going on there. Um, yeah. They are. Any, anybody that comes to Kentucky to, to, to do the Kentucky Bourbon Trail or just come to Kentucky, period, you got to go there. They're, you're right. Super top-notch guys. They do a great job, make great bourbon. But but we uh, part of what I did was negotiate a, a, a contract with them through their collaboration um, distillation program. And essentially what, what I did, I gave them our mash bill. Our mash bill is uh, 70% corn. 21% rye and 9% malted barley, just like we started with with the the, uh, the first two that you tasted, same, same mash bill. That was just coincidence, <laughs> not by design, by the way. Um, and, uh, you know, I gave them the cooking procedures as far as time and temperatures, fermentation specs, uh, the distillation specs. I actually selected the barrels that we were going to use for the, the ones that uh, we originally laid down. And so last August, that, that program began. They made a little over 600 barrels for us. Um, 
again, through the, the specifications I gave them, I was there to actually oversee the process so that, uh, you know, made sure that they were, were doing everything according to our specifications and, and a very talented group of people, uh, very trustworthy. And, and uh, again, they do a great job. So we laid down a little over 600 last August. This past February, we made, laid down another 600 plus. And then uh, the ones we talked about earlier with the, the barrels that I actually hand-selected and will be a part of overseeing the production of in January. We've got another 600 coming. So You have 1,800 barrels is really, you know, of the new stuff. Your distribution right now is really more Kentucky, Tennessee, where else? I can't imagine you going super wide, right? Yeah, we're, we're pr- predominantly southeast. I think we do some work in Colorado as well. I think it's a pretty good market in Colorado for us. And, and we're looking at expansion opportunities. But but again, right now, uh, most of our products are focused in, in the southeast. And you'll be laying down a few hundred more if you're expanding. Yeah, I mean, that's that's kind of the game plan is, is to, you know, kind of wrap that up as, as we go on and, and put together a, a full-blown extended sales plan on out in the future and and build you know our, our liquidation model and distillation model based on that but you feel comfortable i mean it, it has to be interesting for you being a master distiller and having the experience you have but yet also being friends yeah with those other people you're you're entrusting them with your baby so to speak i mean you were there for the beginning and you watched it happen and there's plenty of people, you know, I mean, think about restaurants. There's plenty of people that when the regional manager comes in, it's in tip-top shape. You were staying there the night before. Everybody, you know, polished up the stainless steel, and then it looks <laughs> goes back to looking like crap the next day. I mean, I know, at least for somebody who walked into Bardstown, I can tell you it looked pretty damn good when you yeah. weren't there. But there are whole procedures in place, right, for them to, to follow your thing note for note absolutely everything is locked down the way it needs to be uh, they've got a very talented group all the procedures are, are, are very well documented and and, and followed to a t and uh, you know their, their systems their their automated systems that they use it's a great great program that they've got and, and it's it's hard to mess up so. no i mean everything there looked amazing and it's one of those things that that and there's such a showcase distillery, but it's such a workhorse. Like it's almost like looking at a Ferrari because you know, the engine inside of it is incredible, but it's such a pretty car on the outside and everything about, I mean, I was in awe when I looked at the schedule. Yeah, that's a good analogy actually. Yeah. But yeah, you're right. Yeah. The schedule is <laughs> pretty complicated. I mean, they, they, they do have a select group of people that they work for, but it, it entails a number of different mash bills. And so they got to be on their toes. But again, the procedures they've got in are, are excellent for, for what they're doing. And you have it down with them. Explain a little bit more about the procedures because you were talking about before we started recording. I mean, you even have it to, I want these cooked at this temperature at this exactly. point. So down to the how you're actually cooking the grains mm-hmm. and then putting them together, That that's all stuff you've worked out, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. That's crazy. I mean, there's so many things. We, we've we talked about it before, and, and we've had someone on this show to talk about it. It's like you have that 65 to 70% of the flavor that comes from the barrel, so that 30 to 35% is so important. It, it's all stuff that you've learned from your tremendous career that we've learned so much about tonight. And, and now you can add one more thing 
in your book, Hanging Out with the Dads on Dad's Drinking <laughs> Bourbon. So, Greg, we thank you so much for coming, and we, we hope you come again. And, and we're, we're expecting great things to come out with Chicken Cock. I think there's going to be some other releases that, that they're going to have. I mean, Adam texted me the other day, and we'll let the sales guy do his thing for a second, but... There is actually going to be like a good mid-range price chicken cock that's about to come out, right? So for those of you on the interwebs who can't see, I'm showing the guys here the label of what's going to be our new standard Kentucky straight bourbon, having fully transitioned to Kentucky. So Greg can talk about the, well, what we're allowed to talk about, the the provenance of this bourbon. But this new package is coming out. It's going to be a Kentucky straight bourbon. It's going to be more like a $60 retailer. So good everyday bourbon, more in line with what we want to have out there as our standard. And uh, Greg can talk about it. He's in, in the middle of, uh, we're going to be bottling the next two weeks. Yeah, so. actually the last week of July, we're going to be bottling this. And, and uh, actually we were hoping to do it next week, but uh, we had a little delay in the, in the materials coming in, which can happen from time to time, but that's okay. So we're going to get get bottled in, in, in due time and hopefully get into market uh, here sometime, hopefully in August. I don't know how long the transition takes from warehouse to distributor, but yeah, sometime in August, hopefully. But it is a 90 proof bourbon, as, as Adam said. It's, it's all 100% straight Kentucky bourbon. And it's, it's a blend, actually, of five-year-old and 12-year-old. And uh, had an interesting conversation with a gentleman today about it. You know, the 12-year-old really kind of starts to, to lean heavy on, on the oak lactones, okay, which you can get sometimes in the older bourbons, you know, depending on where it was aged in the warehouse, of course, and, and, you know, a little bit of heavy oak. But when you blend it with that five, it really balances it out really nice, and it really kind of opens up the caramel and vanillas and some of those more desirable flavors that you're trying to, to pull out of the bourbon. So excited about it. Uh, you know, we we able to get the, the price point to where it'll hopefully work better for, for more people. But... Um, and it's we we've got a fair amount of it, so hopefully it can help. We'll help bridge the gap to where we can get uh, ours of proper age uh, that we've got laid down in barrels right now at, in Bardstown, and uh, come out with uh, with the, our new stuff. So you know what would have been really cool? What's that? Though? If you brought some, I tried. I tried I'm, to get just, it. I'm just I'm just he, he did try no, actually. I just want to say thank you so much. I mean, you guys did bring in a lot. I don't want to sound like an ass. Just gives a, a reason for part two. Yeah, I know. I, and Forget it. We're done. Let's get out of here, Greg. I really, really hope you come back for part two. And and thank you so much for being so transparent uh, and sharing everything you've shared, including the whiskey, Adam and Greg. Thank you both. Our pleasure. Thank Have you for having us. Yeah. Well, where can the folks find you? Where can they find Chicken Cock? Oh, boy. I mean, so depending on where you live, we're, all, we're in about 50 different retailers across Middle Tennessee or across the whole state of Tennessee. Probably 50 in Middle and East Tennessee and then another 30 or so in West Tennessee. Just kind of depends where you want to go. Ask your local shop about it. Do you want to know some of the, the what main a, ones that were? Well, yeah. no. What about like uh, the Grams, your social media? Are you on oh, Instagram? Or are you on Facebook? Di- you... Digitally. Digitally. Yeah. On the interwebs. Yeah, so we are at you know at Chicken Cock Whiskey on Instagram or on Twitter or on Facebook. Uh, for what it's worth, we actually have a ridiculous following on uh, on Facebook. I'm sure that's probably just because the name catches people's eyes and it's pretty funny. But we've got uh, quite a few followers on there, and we've got a great uh, team that's doing our Instagram and Twitter for us. So uh, at Chicken Cock Whiskey is where we are. Well, I was going to say, if you're looking for one on a chicken, you're not going to find it. <laughs> 
You can find Dad Tricky Bourbon on Instagram at Dad Tricky Bourbon, Facebook at Dad Tricky Bourbon, Twitter at Bourbon Dads. You can also find us on your favorite podcast app, Apple, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, YouTube, whatever it is, we are on it. Please leave us an open and honest review, just like we leave open and honest reviews for any of the whiskey that we try. Zeke, where else can the folks find us? I hope your daughter laughs at your jokes. I know your wife doesn't. <laughs> Nashville, Tennessee. Ciao. <laughs> Cheers. <laughs> Thank Cheers, you, guys. <laughs> Had a great time. Thank you. <laughs>